Life is full of surprises. Consider the fate of this creature's poor mother. Struck down in the fourth month of her maternal condition by an elephant, a wild elephant. The result is plain to see. Ladies and gentlemen, the terrible elephant man. Welcome to Now Playing's review of The Elephant Man. I ain't seen nothing like you before. Part of the Now Playing David Lynch review series. This is monstrous and should not be allowed. Hosted by Stuart. Don't be frightened, he won't hurt you. Jacob. But at no time have I met with such a perverted or degraded version of a human being as this man. And Arnie. I fear the other patients would find him rather shocking. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we continue looking at all of David Lynch's films. I'll see to it that you have everything you need. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Now don't be frightened. I simply want to look at you. Don't be frightened. Listener discretion is advised. I think I'll examine you now. I'll leave the questions to later. Today we're discussing The Elephant Man, starring Anthony Hopkins, John Hurt, and Bancroft, directed by David Lynch. This is the now-playing co-host whose life is full, because I know I am heard. Arnie. Stuart in LA? I am not an animal! I am a podcast host! This is Jacob. <laughs> I was going to do that line, but I did it in Batman Returns reversed. So I had to, I went back to Batman <laughs> Returns and yep, there's, I am not a human being. I am a podcaster. I never actually thought when I did that line, we'd be discussing the elephant, man. <laughs> yeah. You know, Arnie, you had a lot of problems with experimental narratives in artsy fartsy directors last week, but is it any better for you that we're going to a biopic? Yes, actually. I mean, there are a number of biopics I like. The Aviator's not one of them. Love Wolf of Wall Street, though. I mean, go a little further in that retrospective. You'll hear me effusive about one. But The Elephant Man is a movie I saw when I was way too young. I have no idea why I watched this, but I was seven or eight years old, and it was on NBC, and I thought it was a movie from, like, the 30s or 40s because it was black and white, and I decided to watch this, and I wept like a baby when it ended, and it stuck with me. I've never seen it since, but I was excited to revisit and discuss The Elephant Man, knowing, if nothing else, there would be a plot we could discuss. <laughs> and yet I feel like it is a weird sequel to Eraserhead. This one's all about that weird alien baby growing up. But like you, Arnie, I saw this when I was like eight years old. It was on TV. My dad's like, oh, The Elephant Man. This is a great movie. You need to watch this. It had already started. It was where... The Elephant Man was coming to the hospital, and he had, he had that hood on, and I'm like, okay, I want, to, I want to see what he looks like. I want to see what he looks like. And when it came off, I'm like, where's the trunk? Where's the ears? He's not an elephant. And so I changed channels. <laughs> you want Ganesh. Yes. That's what I thought. It was. At eight years old, I think that's a rightful assumption for something called The Elephant Man. But I, I know this story. Like, this 
in my realm of pop culture, this is something that gets referenced quite a bit. So I've never seen it all the way through, but I am familiar with it. It was always on when I was a kid. I mean, it was a new movie to cable. And even though it looked like this old movie, it was just on a lot. I saw it a whole lot. And I do feel like it was probably this and Helen Keller, right? Were the introductions <laughs> into how scholastically we were able to talk about the disadvantaged, the disabled. It was where I first realized, you know, People aren't all born the same. And I think I was genuinely touched, but very curious. Like, I can actually remember playing with my brother. I would put, like, a grocery bag over my head. I would I would be John Merrick and slur my words. And I don't think I wanted to be the Elephant Man, but it was fun to play and, and to imagine yourself as such. He captured my imagination. I was wondering if you think Friday the 13th Part 2 stole the whole bag-over-the-head deformed look from this movie. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't. Uh, but uh, it is striking and it is historically accurate. I want to say for this viewing, coming back to it many years later, I've seen the movie, oh, like I said, tons as a child and maybe once or twice after I knew who David Lynch was. But for this one, I wanted to be prepared. So I have gone back and read the original physician, Frederick Treves, wrote about his encounter with the Elephant Man. It's a 14-page story. I read that. I read the, the book that sort of amended it that came 50 years later that sort of kicked off the whole pop culture craze about the Elephant Man. And then I also read a more recent book that sort of fact-checked things. So I feel like for this one, when I watched it, I wanted to know about historical accuracy and what liberties uh, Lynch might have taken. What is his influence? Because I think when you watch it, I think you're exactly right, Jacob. You could almost see this as a fantastical creature, not unlike some of the ones we saw last week. I'll call out parts, but I see a lot of the same symbolism, his use of sound in this. Yes. I really do feel like, yeah, he was bringing that Eraserhead production over to this. And why is Lynch on this? Why is he doing a <laughs> biopic about a deformed, I, I get it, a deformed man. Okay, maybe that's in his wheelhouse, but this doesn't seem like a Lynch film until I see certain parts of it, but it doesn't seem like something he would do. It doesn't seem like the guy that made the movie we talked about last week would make this as his next film. And indeed, that wasn't the plan. He had his script ready, and what he was trying to get made in Hollywood in 1977 was Ronnie Rocket, the fabled production that is, to this day, he's still trying to make Ronnie Rocket. At one point, it had the little man from Twin Peaks as the star. I, I read about half the script, and it's just kind of more of the same of a Eraserhead. It's a weird industrial town where plastic surgeons steal someone from a hospital, and while they're changing their face, they end up turning them into a electric-powered superhero. I'm sort of, <laughs> I'm sort of uh, changing a few things. I don't know if you'd call it a superhero, but at least conceptually, it was sort of in that realm. And it was all about like hoarding electricity. I mean, it was weird. What can you say? It was pages and pages of nonsense and strange comedy and would be very much like a sequel to Eraserhead. And surprise, surprise, nobody in Hollywood wanted to spend any money on that. So Lynch was sort of back to painting and uh, roofing. But I think he made a lot of sheds. He was doing carpentry at this point. <laughs> a real Harrison Ford. Yeah, he w in reverse. 
I think Lynch always would have had a career if Elephant Man hadn't come along. He was just waiting for MTV, right? I mean, Eraserhead <laughs> set to a music video. When that whole thing broke, we missed a great music video film director by him getting Elephant Man. But what basically happened was someone that had the rights to the story saw it here in L.A. at the New Art Theater where it ran every Friday for four years and said, this is my favorite film. I want this guy to do The Elephant Man and brought it to him at David Lynch's office, also known as Bob's Big Boy. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, the big player, the man who endorsed it, the man who funded it, I just can't believe we keep talking about him, but as he did with The Fly, Mel Brooks. (laughs) Yeah, Mel Brooks was a little bit more high level. Mel Brooks, yes, a comedian, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, that guy, comedy writer extraordinaire, like many comedians, had a serious side and wanted to show it and found it very difficult in Hollywood to do that. So he created a company called Brooks Films, where he kind of, you know, his name wouldn't be on the credits, on the titles, but he would get to make more serious pictures. And so he was looking for those kinds of projects. Stuart Kornfeld, who is the David Lynch Eraserhead fan, was working for him. And he was like, Mel, you got to go see Eraserhead. Surprisingly, Mel liked it. He thought that it was very translatable. The idea of an unhappy father came through through all the weirdness. And so he totally signed off on Lynch and some of his ideas. Now, Lynch signed on not even knowing who John Merrick was. He just liked the idea of an elephant man. I think he was hoping for the movie you wanted, Jacob, when you were eight years old. He was like, yeah, oh, I, good. I think Talk I know trunks. what part. I can do that. I saw Lynch. He has a writing credit, and I'm pretty sure I know which parts he wrote in this film. Oh, very, very clear. Well, I think you can tell his influence. There was a script already. It should be said, The Elephant Man was a hot property. It was on Broadway. There was a stage play. And there was uh, this competing script. I think it was going to get made with somebody. But the fact that Mel Brooks had it and signed off on Eraserhead and David Lynch needed a job basically meant that, okay, we're going to make this version. And Lynch had a couple caveats. He won one fight and he lost two. He was like, okay, I'm going to make this film. It's going to cost you $30,000, and Jack Nance, Eraserhead, is going to be the star of the film. And it's going to be in black and white. Did you say $30,000? <laughs> well, Eraserhead was twenty, so that was really hiking up the price. That was a ton of money for a film. <laughs> Did this really only cost $30,000? Of course not, Arnie. Okay. I mean, this... I'm showing you how out of touch Lynch was with major motion pictures. This was a guy coming from AFI who made a film with his friends for six years. He didn't want to do that again, but he didn't know that he was going to have to go to England, work with really established, well-renowned actors, and, and have other people do it all. I mean, he was used to controlling of every facet of production, to be told you're going to London. I mean, keep in mind, he had only been out of the country for two weeks and it had gone disastrously. To have to go there and to work with people that were as talented or more than him, it was overwhelming. He talks about the shooting of this movie being absolute agony every day, that he just feared of humiliating and embarrassing himself because, you know, the pressure was so much more intense than when, you know, he was making it all in his private little AFI room. It it seems like, you know, he 
he's going to get an offer from Lucas a few years later, but it does feel like he's going through that same kind of thing that Lucas did when Star Wars was getting made. It's really weird that someone would go from Eraserhead to this kind of film. But again, that had a lot to do with Stuart Kornfeld believing in the vision and believing that Lynch could do what he did there in small quantities for Elephant Man and that it would help. And one of the things they were receptive to was black and white. That was Lynch's idea. He still liked working in the format and and that's what he wanted to do. And I think that's a big factor why the movie even stands out. Um, when Lynch read the script, he was kind of like, you know, this is really kind of boring. It's a lot of people in rooms talking and I just don't want it to be masterpiece theater. So I think he was really thinking about bringing his atmosphere and, you know, his obsessions with light fixtures and sounds and the industrialization of Victorian England. I mean, no other director would have put those touches in there. And I think that Mel Brooks was very supportive of it. He was like, okay, go do that. But other things he was not supportive was, yeah, Jack Nance is the lead. It had already been decided that the guy who had the alien burst out of his stomach was going to be the lead. And a lot of these English people had already been picked out for the cast. Lynch didn't have a lot of control over that. And then Lynch also wanted to design the makeup. He was like, you know, I'm an artist. I have a very clear idea about how I want the elephant man to look. And they were like, okay. And then when John Hurt got on set, all I've heard conclusively is it just didn't look right. Yeah, my understanding is that they still have, like, the skeleton of the Elephant Man. Like, they went back to that to, I guess, do the final makeup. They borrowed it from Michael Jackson? No, it was at the Royal Hospital and still being studied to this day. Still parts of it being used and studied. And, yes, they had to go to the authentic thing because Lynch's design just didn't look right. I mean, they said that it was because John Hurt showed up and he had lost a lot of weight in his face. I don't know how that I don't know how that would have worked with the facial applications, but I think they were being kind in saying that Lynch was just overwhelmed. And while he might have been able to pull that off on a $30,000 budget in AFI, for the production that they were making, they needed something that, that looked better, that was less rigid. They talked about Lynch's makeup being like concrete. It just didn't move at all. And they last minute, they had five days before shooting. They knocked on the door of a guy working on Reds, the next studio over. And he, yeah, went and borrowed the skeleton of the actual Elephant Man, made the cast, and what you see is pretty medically accurate. It's pretty close to exactly how the Elephant Man looked. But if it had been Lynch's design, it would have been a little bit more abstract and strange. But Jacob, you also mentioned Lucas. I think it's important to note Lucas didn't just jump into studio filmmaking with Star Wars. He had done, you know, I would say THX-1138 may be on par with Eraserhead, but Lucas did have that middle step of American graffiti where he could get used to the studio system. There's the stories of him not getting along specifically with the crew over in England. And, and perhaps it's just English film crews that don't get along with Americans. Yeah, the, people were very kind to Lynch. All the people that met him enjoyed him, but I just think they didn't know who he was. And it was Mel Brooks that really protected him. Uh, every time the studio was really he was like, we like your actor, we like this, we like that. But who is this kid? It was Mel Brooks that fought for him and kept him and, and got him the $5 million budget. This movie was made on $5 million, which was, you know, a, a decent amount, certainly more than 20000 that he had for Eraserhead, but not super high budget. And I think they really 
were able to make that money go far. And when the movie came out in October 1980, it ended up doing five times that. It grossed $25 million, was nominated for eight Oscars, and put Lynch and everyone involved, really, in a different caliber. From my understanding, it basically created a new category for best makeup because that didn't exist before this and people were outraged. That's true. Yeah, there there was no Oscar given to special makeup effects and this movie probably should have gotten it and uh, because it didn't, uh, American Werewolf got it the next year. They created the category. And one of the things Mel Brooks did because the studio liked this film but really wanted to cut the opening and ending scenes. I mean, <laughs> Brooks stood by Lynch's vision as eraser heady as it may be. Yeah, and I think that, well, you know, nobody else would have made some of these choices. A lot of people could have made the Elephant Man, and I'm, probably many of them would have made a good Elephant Man, but I think only one man could have made this Elephant Man. So, yeah, let's talk about those touches. Let's talk about this film. Arnie, if you got the plot, we'll get into it. Yes, there again is one this week. <laughs> good. Though you may just want to skip this opening dream sequence. <laughs> I do, actually. John Merrick, played by John Hurt, is a tragically deformed man. He has an unusable arm and lumps growing out of his skull that prevent him from even being able to sleep flat or he will asphyxiate. Born that way, he's grown up to be a sideshow freak abused by the show owner, Mr. Bites, who displays him as the Elephant Man. One day, Merrick is spotted in London by Dr. Frederick Treves, played by Anthony Hopkins. Treves takes Merrick in for examination and study, but then Merrick returns to the sideshow. But after a severe beating, Mr. Bites is forced to call Treves to save Merrick's life. Treves does, admitting Merrick to the hospital's isolation wing lest his appearance disturb the other patients, and once nursed back to health, Treves refuses to let Bites take him back to the show. For Treves has discovered inside the deformed body is an intelligent and well-read man. Treves convinces the hospital administration to let Merrick stay, though they are all unaware of a hospital orderly who takes payments at night to see the deformed freak. Merrick even becomes well-known in London's upper crust as actress Madge Kendall comes to visit him, and then other well-to-do English people do the same. But during one of the orderly's midnight showings, Mr. Bites tags along and kidnaps Merrick, fleeing London with the Elephant Man again on display. However, the other sideshow freaks help Merrick to escape. He returns to London, where he is chased by a mob. He gets back to the hospital, but is severely injured and slowly dying. Still, Trees takes Merrick to see Kendall perform at the theater, and after the show, Kendall dedicates her performance to Merrick. The theater gives the Elephant Man a standing ovation, and he returns to the hospital happy. He then proceeds to lay down like a normal person and dies, as he has a vision of his mother and credits roll. Yep, visions are aplenty here, and to be expected, I don't think that David Lynch would have made this movie if he didn't have the ability to use the imagination. If he had to just do a masterpiece theater, by the book kind of plotting, I just don't think that it would have worked at all. But yeah, we get a very Lynch opening that sets a spell. Yeah, and I wasn't expecting this because this opening score, it felt very Elfman-esque to me. It was like part music box, part carnival, but then it goes into that ominous Eraserhead hum as we see elephants. I'm like, wow, he's going literal here. 
I always thought when I saw Hellraiser years later that it was the same score, that they had borrowed the Elephant Man score for that. It so closely resembles it. I didn't get any whiffs of Hellraiser off of this, and I know that score pretty well. I like the score to this movie, but it didn't scream Christopher Young to me. But there is definitely, when I saw this opening, I'm like, oh, wow, seeing this so soon after Eraserhead. <laughs> You're ready to turn it off. No, I'm not ready to turn it off because I've seen this movie before and I know what's coming. I have to wonder what regular audiences who went in to see the biopic about this sad, deformed man from the early 20th century thought when they see a photograph of a woman and a bunch of elephants. I'm like, this is like straight out of Eraserhead here. Yeah, there, there's a puff of white smoke. It's another weird sex scene. Yeah, I thought the elephants were f her. I really thought that that's what it was saying. I didn't go that literal, but I do take it as conception. No, I thought they were saying the elephant man was a hybrid. That's what I... I mean, I know <laughs> that that didn't happen, but I thought that's what this was supposed to imply. Yeah, I, I don't think that it's an incorrect reading. I, what it does is it takes the myth. Worth pointing out that John Merrick, or I should say Joseph Merrick, knew his mother very well. And for the first 10 years of his life was raised by her. She's real. But I think that Treves, the man that wrote the defining story of the Elephant Man, never believed that the woman that he carried around in the photograph was really his mother. He thought that he was abandoned at birth and that this is just something that he made up to comfort himself and that this woman left his deformed kid in a bad state. And... That woman changes looks in these this opening dream sequence. Like, it does transform into a different woman, I thought. It wasn't the same one the whole time. Mm, I, I think it's the same actress. It does get confusing because there are two women credited as playing Merrick's mother. And what I read was one was at the beginning. So all of this woman in the beginning, the photograph and everything, is one actress. And then at the end, when he dies and sees his mother, it's another actress. But they look really similar, and yet in this opening, the actress looks dissimilar. The photograph to the woman, to the screaming woman who's on the ground getting trampled by elephants. It's confusing if they are the same person, and I can't think that's an accident. I think Lynch is trying to make even the same actress look different, and then a different actress look similar, maybe to go with Merrick's fuzzy memory of his mother or something. But I saw what you saw, Jacob. It's just... I think Lynch is doing this intentionally, though, right? Yeah, to me, they were similar enough that I didn't see a disparity. What they're going off of is the birth as John Merrick told it. That when he entered willingly, I want to add, into the freak show scene and wrote his autobiography, he said the reason why he turned out the way he was was because his mom attended a circus and was startled by a parade of elephants while she was pregnant. And thus, you know, it's a very old world superstitious notion. And I think Lynch seized on that. Lynch liked the idea of going that route rather than spending 10 years watching a mother watch tumors and bulbous pockets appear on a perfectly normal looking child. I think we saw in Eraserhead that the way that he looks at birth, it's almost like he comes from outer space. It's, you know... That's what I'm saying. This feels like a sequel. It's about a deformed man who's abandoned by his parents, especially his mother here. And I do feel like this opening, weird, surrealist sequence, it, it tells you 
At least it tells me. I, I, I guess if it's surreal, I can only say what it says to me. But is that that mother was afraid of those deformities. We see her in terror of those elephants. I don't think she's really getting trampled by elephants, but I see her afraid of that. See, and later on when Mr. Bites is showing him at the show and says his mother was trampled by elephants, I just had to, aha, that's what we were seeing in this very stylistic, low-budget method. Yeah, but he said, like, at four months after conception or something, like, he was a preemie. No, like- she was four months pregnant in Africa and was trampled by elephants. But, again, these are all, you know, that's a twist on on what was published. If you went to the freak show, you would have gotten an autobiography that said pretty much that's how Merrick turned out. Of course, that is not why Merrick has the deformities that he does. But I think Lynch embraces that. What it does is it, it puts this character in the realm of, symbolism and metaphor and he's going to represent something as opposed to being just the story of how he came into being yeah i mean to to skip to the end when it said things never die they just go on and on again that has to do with myth myths don't die they keep going throughout culture so that that's it's going to come full circle oh it's all very stardust You don't have to go there. (laughs) Yeah. But the first act is really not his point of view. In fact, I will argue most of this movie, while being called Elephant Man, is about the people that meet the Elephant Man and not what how he thinks or is. Uh, It's a half hour, really, of slowly revealing the freak himself and and to assure us that he is human, that they spend a great deal of time debating the fact that he may not be a man at all. And this was kind of odd how they did it in my mind is because we have the sideshow being shut down and Treves is there in the audience. And because it's Anthony Hopkins, I knew who he was. Of course, in real life, I didn't know who Anthony Hopkins was until Silence of the Lambs. The fact that he was 40 years old and had been acting for 20 years at this point was a little shocking to me. But when I'd seen him in magic, I hadn't seen that. I still haven't seen that. Oh, the commercials is one of the scariest ever made. But we get to see the Elephant Man in a private showing about 15 minutes into the movie, which makes it really odd for me that then they play him like E.T. for another 15 minutes where we're going to see silhouette and we're going to see the bag over his head again. I'm like, we had the reveal. Why are you playing coy now? It, it was in shadow, though. It wasn't in full light. You couldn't see all the details. We don't see sunlight until the nurse walks in in the attic. And I think that that's the first time we really can see what's going on. That it's very high-key black and white photography going on here. And my re- frame of reference is horror movies. The cinematographer that he got is a director of Hammer Horror Movies. This story kind of feels like Frankenstein and Phantom of the Opera. And I think they're tapping into that. I think they're building the idea that this will feel, kind of how I felt about Eraserhead too, like a horror movie for a lot of it. Until you realize the monster is the most sympathetic. And it also feels like a Lynch horror movie because, I mean, we see Treves, we're going to be introduced to him as a surgeon, and he's operating on a man in a machine accident, and he, like, curses, you know, machines, you can't reason with them. Again, you get this idea of industry and that it's not necessarily a good thing. We'll get lots of shots of pipes and just men cranking wheels throughout this movie. It captures that Victorian era, but I also think he's just going, you know, we're going to see a freak of nature, but also this mechanized society 
is also not the answer. It's also not good. I just like that layer they put in there. And during these early scenes, he also drowns out the dialogue with sounds of machines. Again, so eraser head when we were talking about how the dialogue was drowned out by the sounds there. Here, he's ostensibly saying, hey, it's the industrial era, but really, it's Lynch being Lynch and playing with sound, right? It's Lynch's fear of the industrial era, I feel. We saw that in Eraserhead. Lynch has never, as far as I read, defined what he feels about industry. He grew up in the forest and saw lots of sawmills and industrialization. To him, he says it's beautiful. He doesn't see this in a negative context. Oftentimes, he feels like looking at factories is being right present for in-the-flesh abstract art. It's exciting to him. He finds it stimulating from a visual standpoint. Whether they represent bad things in commerce and all of that, he's happy to let other people put those ideas into the film. He has never spoken definitively about whether he thinks it's a good or bad thing. But yeah, it's a very Lynch thing. I mean, we can all agree that this man has clearly got obsessions and motifs and that they're playing out here in very similar ways. I'm very curious. I haven't revisited Dune in a few years. If there will be big scenes <laughs> where we can't hear Kyle McLaughlin over the sounds of floating people. Oh, the bad guys, the Harkonnens are definitely from a factory world. But yes, you mentioned Treves, and he is really, I consider, the lead character here. The story is more about Treves and his fight for this man than it is about this man. I don't know which one has a greater arc when all is said and done. I think they both have a little bit of one. I believe the fact that this is a biopic hampers a truly literary arc for either. But Hopkins is very good in this performance. He's stately. He's had experience with Shakespeare, so he's able to do various periods and not sound like he's an 80s guy in the 1800s. He's able to shed a tear when he finally sees the elephant man. Oh, well, yeah, I have no complaint about this cast. Again, Lynch was intimidated because he knew that these people knew more than him about acting. What could he tell John Gielgud, John Hurt, Anthony Hopkins about acting? I mean, some of these people were knighted and dames. I mean, he was out of his element. And so I think that the performance choices that are made largely are the actors. Now, of course, Lynch was there to say yes or no on things. But for example, in this scene, when he first sees Merrick and the camera pushes in, the choice to cry, that tear that drips down his face... That was Hopkins. Yeah, I figured, I, I I don't know if Lynch would go that sentimental, like that maudlin to, to have that tear fall, which I, I don't have a problem with it. I think it fits this film. You are transported into another time. Like, it's weird thinking that this is a 1980s film because it looks like such a period piece or such an older film that would maybe have been done in the 30s. So I go with that tear when it is shed. Yeah, the black and white really masks the time period. Although, looking at the Blu-ray transfer of this, it's so crisp and so clear clear it almost feels like it was shot on digital video and not on film of course such a thing didn't exist in 80 but the high contrast and everything it just it helps set up the mood and of course this was competing against another black and white film that same year for the oscar raging bull i don't know why in 1980 everybody was pulling out the black and white film stock 
No, I think it's why Lynch was allowed to do it. It's Woody Allen had just made Manhattan as well. It was all the film fanatics were doing it. I mean, that we were still at a time when film lovers were behind the cameras, and that that did somewhat change. And in the eighties, we saw less concessions to artistic whims. But in 1980, it's still the cusp of the seventies. Directors still call the shots. So yeah, it, it was an indulgence that Brooks fought for and was allowed and they went all the way it's worth pointing out that you could have shot it in color and been like oh wait we'll we'll strike a print in black and white and see how it goes no this is monochrome film there was no color version if it didn't work they were stuck with it yeah the film that came to mind the only one after this that i could think of that used black and white to much the same effect was schindler's list where we were also dealing with a period piece, human horrors, and the black and white sold a verisimilitude to the environment. Here's the difference, though. I mean, I think that a lot of times we think of certain eras being in black and white because the photographs from that time are in black and white. And that's certainly true of the 1800s. But nobody alive in 1980 would remember this time period, which is not true when Schindler's List came out. I mean, it almost creates this fairy tale world. It almost makes this feel mythical because of the way that it's being made, it feels like almost no place on earth. On one hand, it, it just has an enchantment that feels timeless, really, out of time. First, you start with the freak show, which I just, I don't think those exist today. I mean, even having an elephant in a carnival is a controversial choice these days. They do exist. There's one in Venice. Yeah, I'm sure, yes, Venice, and I know there's the Jim Rose Circus, I've seen that, but in this variation, and the fact that, again, Lynch has, like, shirtless men, like, moving cranks around at times, like, I don't know what those machines do, but, yeah, it does feel otherworldly at times, not just, oh, because I'm not familiar with the 1800s, but it just, it feels literally like a different era, like, would this exist or is this just in a storybook? It feels like a nightmare. It feels scary. And again, my frame of reference is this is a horror movie. This is scary. And so I think part of the reasons why we, we rally around Treve so fast, he, he seems to be the only one with compassion. You see, he's making it a point of protecting this man who is living in squalor. Now, fact check alert, the man didn't live in squalor. Merrick did not get abused. The people that ran the sideshow were his friends, and he signed up willingly to do so. Yeah, I've seen freaks. They watch each other's backs. Yeah. What happened was, after he got examined, he went and joined another man on a tour of the continent because they were closing down. London saw them as indecent. I think they were also trying to crack down against criminal elements and saw this as part of the problem, but they were pushing it out of London and the major cities. They tried their luck in the continent, and even there, the French had problems. We'll see this towards the end of the movie, but all of that stuff happened before Merrick came to live in the hospital. They changed the timeline a bit. And what I think's interesting about Treves' character, and it will get called out later, is when he goes, he basically rents out Merrick. Like, I, I thought he was trying to rescue him, but no, he just wants to borrow him for the day to show off to his medical buddies. Like, he isn't there on a humanitarian mission at first. Isn't he, though? Because I felt like it wasn't just to show off, but to study as a surgeon. If he had examined him and determined there was a way to help him, I take it from Hopkins' performance, he would have from the get-go. But after examination, 
he realizes this is a deformity that cannot be cured, but let's present it. You know, it is it is medically significant and worthy of study. Yeah. That's why they still keep his bones. They're doing DNA tests on him as recently as a few years ago. And I don't feel like he was using him or showcasing him as Bites was. And certainly he was very nice versus abusive like Bites. Well, yeah, there wasn't the abuse. And and whether he was exploiting or not is to be determined throughout this film. But he is dehumanized. when Again, and I think Lynch chooses, when he shoots it, is to have the elephant man. You only see him in silhouette behind that screen. The way that Trees points out that his genitals remain intact and unaffected by all the various tumors and whatnot. But he writes him off as an imbecile, probably from birth, he says. So there's no point in even trying to talk to him or understand his brain. Like, hopefully he's dumb and doesn't understand the pain he's in. Well, yeah, that I felt telling is the hopefully he's an idiot. Can you imagine if he's not? But also, it's worth saying, Merrick never speaks. People are speaking around him. He could show people he's intelligent at any moment. He is playing the part of dumb. Let's understand he has difficulty speaking because of his jaw, because of the shape of his mouth and his protruding bones and all of that. He's just, it's not easy to understand him. And in this movie, even when he speaks, I think that there's a lot of slurp. There's a lot of, I mean, I had the subtitles on. I mean, I, I think it's helpful. I didn't turn him on on purpose to see if what it was like to try to understand him. But yeah, a lot of saliva. It gets better as it goes on. I think it's intentional at first yes. and then he clears it up. Yes, exactly so. But yes, in the first half hour, again, the question is, is this a man? What is this thing? I mean, what have we found here? It really takes the hospital and Treve specifically to define him as a person worthy of extended care. Because this royal hospital, someone like this would normally just be cast into a sanitarium. They only treat people that can get better. And the early diagnosis is that this is an imbecile who has a condition that cannot be treated. The truth is that actually, as Merrick was growing up, he did have operations that while he was in the workhouse, they actually removed what he called a trunk from his face and that even what we see here isn't what he might have looked like. Ah, I could have got that Ganesh movie I wanted. <laughs> you might have gotten that Ganesh movie. But here's the question I always have about Lynch and I find this one a fascinating to first bring it up. We're going to see in Lynch films a lot of freaks, a lot of people doing excessive, weird, manic behavior. Is Lynch bringing them to our attention to mock or does he have compassion for them? Are they his people and he's defending them? I often wondered. Now, last week, I saw that his point of view was very much of the father who had an afflicted baby that was driving him insane, that there was no compassion for that baby, that he saw it very much as mocking him. And in this one, I actually feel Lynch is identifying with Merrick, that in fact you could look at it as his autobiography, how he entered show business as this weirdo that no one really understood at first, but eventually they figured it out. I imagine what it's kind of what it was like on set with this strange American who made those indescribable movies now here making a Hollywood respectable film. It's kind of Merrick's story arc as well. Yeah, they showed Brooks a racer head before he got this gig and Brooks became all enthusiastic. I can't imagine everybody on set would be quite so excited, especially if they read this and 
the script as portrayed here, if you take out the lynchisms, is a very maudlin, Hollywood, I mean, it's like a black and white version of Beaches, right? Or Brian's song, one of those. Well, uh, hmm, uh, that's, you threw a lot of things out there at the wall. Beaches <laughs> is like its own podcast, but <laughs> sentimentality, yes, I believe that the original screenplay was filled with that, and I believe that Lynch did what he could to minimize that with his syntax, with his obsessions, with other things. I don't think in general he does get sympathetic with freaks. I think that he thinks the world is freaky and he's happy to let them be whatever they are without judgment. In this case, I think that he is pro-Merrick because he knows what it's like to be in a strange place where no one understands you. That is the plight of the elephant man, of John Merrick. He could put on the fanciest suit, the perfume that the queen gives him, walk around with that cane. He is always going to be a reject. Even the upper crust, I think what Lynch, and maybe this was in the original script and it was the writers or it was the actual story, I don't know. But what this movie is telling me is that even those who embraced him, there was still that sideshow aspect that you you could be a freak, but regular society will never see you outside of that as much as you try to fit in. Yeah, I mean, certainly that's act two. I feel like act two is, does Merrick's life appreciably change? Now, obviously, his living situation, there's no argument. It's better. He is not being abused. He's getting proper nutrition. He's getting medical care. But is his life different? Is he still a spectacle once he's allowed to stay? I mean, I do think the, the pivot point in between Act 1 and Act 2 is convincing John Gielgud that this man is a human. And the way to do that is that he can read, that he is a Christian, that he's a man of God that knows Bible quotes. And I thought that was a moving scene. Yeah, no, I like the symbolism that... like. John Merrick is saving himself literally like he's building he's going to build this model church throughout the film. I I thought it was a nice little symbol and yeah, he uses the Bible to convince the governor of the hospital. He's not just repeating words because that's what he, he's accused of of it's all scripted when Treves shows that Merrick can speak, but then he starts reciting Psalms 23 that he wasn't taught and that's because he actually can read. Yeah, I thought that was a good scene. If I'm going to accuse this movie of two sins. One would be sentimentality. The other would be a very, very languid pace where Merrick doesn't really speak until almost halfway through the film, about 45 minutes into a two hour movie. So this was a long time coming. I got to the point rewatching this where I'm like, I know at some point he says, I am not an animal, but is that all he ever speaks in the movie? Is he really mute? I had forgotten his ability to speak and that he becomes actually hyperverbal at certain points. You know, it said at some point the reason why he wasn't speaking, why he didn't tell him he could read, was he was afraid of being beat. That he just assumed that his new master was as cruel as his old master. And that really Treves is seen in counterpoint to Bites, that they're both father figures for what is a child that came out of nowhere, out of a void, and he just knows no different. So once he establishes trust, he will be quite chatty. I guess I missed that line, but that's what I assumed is that Merrick is guarded. He's protecting himself by not talking. The, the more of a freak he appears to be, 
the less people are going to want to poke and prod at him. They might stare, they'll pay a few pences to stare at him, but they'll move on. And it's not until he is given this chance by Treves that Treves proves himself in that trust that he comes out of his shell and starts speaking and, and starts showing more personality. I think part of the problem is, and we've called this out, is that we don't ever really see anything from Merrick's point of view in this film. And I don't know if any of the writings you read, Stuart, show anything from his point of view, but he does feel like a character being acted upon for most the time. He has written an autobiography that was used to advertise his Elephant Man show. That is one of the few, th- and he may have not actually written that himself, but he at least said facts about himself that were written down and turned into sort of a colorful story of his life. But most of what is known about the Elephant Man is what other people have written about him, mostly trees, but other doctors that examined him and people that have gone back to look at records and such and proven what the timeline really is. I think that the point really is, you know, it's said that once it's agreed that, all right, we're going to keep this guy here and the nurses are starting to, you know, prep the room and all. They make the point that we can't bring in mirrors. I actually think what Merrick represents is a mirror. The movie is about whoever is looking at him and it it ends up reflecting back on them, their values, this place, who they really are. That I didn't get the sense that Anthony Hopkins' character was particularly introspective until, yes, one of the nurses calls him out and says, All you're doing is showing him off to a new set of people when he tries to bring in celebrities to give him culture and socialization. Yeah, all this film is about is the reaction to the Elephant Man. Whoever's coming in, whether it's an actress or upper crust or I guess like the security guard at the hospital who's bringing people in to run a freak show because he's there. Like it's it's always how people are reacting to him. I think, though, the only character with a solid arc is him, which is why I feel it's a misstep that so much of the movie is people looking at him. Yes, Treves has that moment where he's talking with his wife and asking, am I a good man? It felt a little bit out of nowhere. You say you don't see Treves as introspective. Not the historical one, not the one that wrote the story. Okay, all right, because I don't get from Hopkins either that he is or that he isn't. And the fact that he asks, am I a good man? But yet, That seems to be the end of that storyline right there. He's not going to continue that journey of his own ethical self-examination. Yeah. Is that Lynch or is that the original writers of the script to leave it ambiguous? Like, I actually like the ambiguity of how do you deal with this freak, whether he's in a sideshow or he's dressing up and going to see a play. Like, how do you deal with that as a normal person in society? What I like is it opens up a lot of questions about the era, Victorian England. It's a, it was a time when everyone was certain that science and reason and, and medicine will solve all the problems. And yet here comes this thing that cannot be cured, that cannot be fixed, and that all you have to do is have compassion for it. That in fact, it is a man and thus a reflection of God and thus must be accepted in its strange design as being of value and of the same value. And and how that reflects on people and how they deal with it, I like that very much. I like the idea that they try to hide mirrors from him, but he ends up casting them on them. I like that. But I do think Arnie is right. I think a, a stronger writing would have made some of those points better. When I actually read the stage play, which is not, ba- it's based on the same material, but not from the same writers. 
a lot more stronger ideas. And I do feel like that is a better script on stage if you were to go see a production like the one recently on Broadway with Bradley, Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper, yes. <laughs> yeah, he was supposed to be incredible. And uh, I do believe that that is the better script. You're going to get more of those adult insights about, yeah, things being thrown back at presumptuous doctors and, and nurses and, and people. What does the fact that this could be a man, the most deformed man that has ever lived, what does that mean about God and what I believe in? And the other thing is, he is allowed to live in the hospital because of his cavorting with actresses and upper crust. The queen herself thanks the hospital for letting him stay there, giving him permanent residence. And he's building, and I know this is a big symbolism, but he's building this church because out of his window, he can see a tower. And he tells the actress, I have to imagine what the rest of it looks like that I can't see. Yes, I get that that's a symbol of trying to see, you know, John Merrick, what is it that you can't see inside of him? But why don't they just let him out? Why don't they take him for a walk? Why don't they let him see this church and say, okay, now you know what you're building? I think you know the answer to that because of how people respond. Now, the upper crust who have been prepped and coached and told they must behave in a proper way when they meet him and nod when he pours tea and try not to tremble their hand. Yeah, they're going to fake it. But most people, you know, Children are always honest, right? Commoners are going to gawk. And whether he wears that bag or goes in finery that's been given to him, he stands out. He represents something that would be an affront. And going out in that way is just putting him in the path of scorn. But does he mind? I mean, he's been literally a sideshow freak, presumably for all of his life in this movie or a good portion of it. Yeah, may, according to this movie, maybe. In reality, only about right. two years. And in reality, it was voluntary. But are they keeping him locked up for them? Or are they keeping him locked up for him, for his benefit? I get the impression that he wouldn't necessarily mind going out. It's not like he wants to be Quasimodo up in his tower. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, yeah, and again, because we don't really get a whole lot from his viewpoint, I do feel like, yeah, maybe he could go out again in his fancy suit. I just don't see society as reacting normal to him. Like, Stuart, you're saying that play, you know, how do you deal with this creation of God? I mean, I, I think that's a great way you they could have gone in this film. But yeah, how do you deal with something that is so far from the norm and, and you know, what most of society would call ugly and you wouldn't want to look at? Like, how does that fit in? Can it actually fit into our society? And again, I, I think for Lynch, probably not. You you are a freak and you, you will always be a freak no matter what happens. Let me give you a good play versus movie take on things and the way they parse it up because it's almost the same in both versions but boy one goes in a totally different direction when we look at Madge Kendall who was played by Anne Bancroft who was Mel Brooks wife she was going to get that part there was nobody else for this but Mrs. Robinson plays a very distinguished actress who takes it upon herself just by reading about the plight of this elephant man that she is going to go visit him she's going to give him plays they're going to be the best of friends and she's going to bring all her society people in there. In the stage play, they take that to a different level, that Merrick is horny and has, as is stated, the functions of a man and says, I want to be your lover. And she doesn't obviously want to do that. She, she's 
told him that she doesn't think that's possible, but because she has seen naked photos of him, she disrobes and Treves walks in and casts her out. So it creates this weird, uncomfortable feeling about women's roles and friendship and how it just was more complicated and more provocative. And here it's very sentimental. I mean, the way that they sell her is that she is just so kind. The only thing that I love about this is the way that Lynch holds on her, that she would like you to believe that she's perfectly fine with this. But there are moments where we see her lip tremble and we see there are moments where she's trying, she's playing a part. She's an actress. She's playing the idea of being an open-hearted, completely accepting, high-minded society woman. But deep down, she's horrified too. And I, I do love the fact that she, like the first thing she gives them is a picture of herself. Yeah, that seemed like something an actress would do today. So I went with it that they do that back then as well. And I like that he put it next to the picture of his mother, but that did hit at something for me that you said the play brought up that this movie doesn't is I'm like, he says when he meets Treve's wife, he cries because a beautiful woman has never been so kind to him. And yeah, it's, I'm surprised that at no point does he show affection. I called him Quasimodo once, but where's his Esmeralda? Yeah, and Miss Kendall, this actress, will kind of give him a kiss. They're reading Romeo and Juliet, and she, I don't know, maybe kisses the cheek or something. I, I don't really know where on that face, what's lips and what's cheek. I felt like she was trying to kiss the lips, but because they're so deformed, she went a little to the right. Yeah, <laughs> but we'll see later on, I mean, when... Again, all these people are brought in to mock him. Like, it looks like what I assume are a couple of prostitutes. They're rubbing up against him and being forced to kiss him. And he's, like, trying to flee from that. I, yeah, they do play him up. I think they play Merrick up as too good. I do want more personality out of him. I mean, he is such an angel in, in Freak's makeup. I always reminded of a conversation we had very recently about a much newer movie where this irked the hell out of Stuart when we were discussing Tim Robbins in Shawshank, a character mm -hmm. that was just too good, too godly. I'm seeing that same exact flaw in The Elephant Man. Yeah, it's a prison movie for sure. And it is one in which they're trying to focus more on the spiritual than the carnal. And that this would have been the relationship to explore that. Again, on stage, it is explored. Here, you know what I kept wondering, is this woman really enamored with him? Or is she just, again, looking in the mirror and wanting to tell herself how great she is that she has such grace? Well, that's what I like about this film is that ambiguity. You never know if people are actually just using him. And you will never be able to not think that because he there is no plastic surgery to fix him and make him look normal. This is who he is. Is she just telling herself, I'm a great actress because I can pull this scene off and make this guy Romeo? I see nothing in this movie to support that reading. Not that it's not a valid reading, but what I see in this, especially with her role at the end, is that she, like his mother, are these angels sent down that he will just idolize and are nothing but good. Yes, her lip quivers a little bit, but that's nothing compared to, you know, the only other people we see visit him are just completely unable to speak or function 
because she is able to kiss him, because she dedicates her performance to him at the end, I take her as just an all-good, devout, like, person in the light. One of, like Treves himself, who is going to get past and see the man inside. Why? I think she's brought in a little bit out of nowhere. I would have liked an establishing scene to see why she shows up that day. Is it something Treves did? Is it something she did? She read the paper. It was that scene with her in the dressing room. She reads in the paper about him and says, I'm going to go see him. But again, I hear what you're saying. That is absolutely how it comes across. I think when I was younger, that's what I just assumed. is like, oh, these are good people because they love him and they can see how beautiful he is inside. But as an adult, and certainly the way that David Lynch likes to linger on discomforting moments... It is well within possibility that this is just a woman telling herself she's a great actress, that this is the mirror reflection. I do feel most sympathetic towards the nurses. Like, I feel they are the most authentic with their feelings. Like, they're straight up horrified by him at the beginning, and I do feel like they come around to him. They're, they don't have that fear anymore. But look why they go, don't get scared. They had nothing but disdain until it was printed in the paper. And then it became cause celebrity. And then they were like, oh, I'm actually cool for knowing this guy. And then they were nice to him. And then they dress up and go out to the theater. But again, you can always see on the surface, yes, kindness, grace, compassion, but deeper and the Lynch view, again, if a different director did this, we probably wouldn't see this stuff. The moments where you have to question the motives. And I think that, yeah, that not maybe none of these people are doing it for altruistic reasons. Certainly some people are doing it for very bad reasons. You mentioned Jim the Porter, and obviously he's here to be hated. Never existed in real life, by the way. This is complete fabrication of the movie. And actually my least favorite part about the movie is that we've already seen this character beaten up. Do we need to see him beaten up again? And for so long that nobody catches this? Well, that the, that John never reports it, which seemed weird. But I do think, you know, it drives home the point that he will never have a normal life. That even here, protected by the Queen and by the hospital, like, he is still going to be treated as a freak. And look, it gives us a chance to see another, like, Lynchian dream sequence where we, like, enter into the eye of that mask and get this really bizarre sequence where, you know, he, ha he has to face himself in the mirror. Yeah. And then they do that in reality, too, that once they finally bust in there and pour drink down his throat, that that's the final gag. So has he never seen himself? Is that what we're to imply there? Because, again, I figured at some point he would have. And he's got to be able to see himself in the reflection of that window he's always sitting in front of doing that, putting that church together. Like, we do see his reflection, but I guess a mirror is more clear. And it's a symbol. I, I mean, I, I think that is the point is he has to face the reality of what he is. Yeah, and there's a certain irony, too, that, like, as the noble people give him gifts and suits and they send him even, like, this kit, this, like, ornate little like grooming yeah i'm like is that a shaving kit like do you want to put a razor to that face yeah i mean what does that signify how do you think that that could help him now apparently they did do that for merrick and he loved it because he would do what we see in the movie he would pretend that he was royalty by doing it it imagined him to elevate in his own mind his status one thing i would have loved the movie to include is the idea that merrick for the longest time had a fantasy about living with blind people that he thought that they would be without judgment. And he had heard of blind communes <laughs> and wanted to live there. I mean, Mel Brooks had already done that in young Frankenstein. 
Yeah, but I, I mean, I do think that's an important thing to think about. And why Treves is working so hard to bring in these people initially is because that he realizes that socialization and I think he just believes that upper crust society makes you a better person. We're better people by having this culture. And if I give it to you, it will elevate you and you will be better. And that is challenged as it goes along. Yeah, that's definitely a Victorian idea that, yeah, you, you have the, the rowdy peasants and then you have the upper crust who are the civilized ones. And and we'll see that when that porter comes in, Mr. Bites is with him this final time and he kidnaps him, takes him back to the freak show. I could never tell if he was kidnapped or if he went willingly. Like, we see him so degraded by this orderly and by those women being shoved on him and he's being beaten and liquor poured on him. And then Bites comes in and the next thing we see is he's gone. But was he just in such a low place? Bites is like, hey, come on back where it's safe and you know what you're getting instead of these people. Mr. Bites reminds me of Gollum. He always calls Merrick, my treasure. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, maybe Merrick, that, that plays to his ego that he knows, like, he is someone's source of income, that he is special to someone. Yeah, it's not clear if he's kidnapped or if he just goes along with him. Or maybe he was drunk because he had all that alcohol poured down <laughs> his throat. You know, I just feel like Merrick's not a character. It's not about, it's not a movie about Merrick. It's how does difference make us feel? And again, I see this character like Lynch and his art. Like, it's like modern art. Like, it's just strange looking and out there. And our response to it is really what it's about. I mean, it exists in its own space and we deal with it how we do. But the climax of the film is very much this character standing up for himself, finally, sort of. I mean, I think that's what it's intended to be, but he does get a lot of help from R2-D2. Once the little people stand up for him and free him. Yeah, when R2-D2 breaks him out of jail. (laughs) Yeah, Kenny Baker. I was surprised to see him in this. I didn't know he was going to have an appearance. Yeah, I I feel like, you know, he definitely has a moment where he tells a raging mob to respect him, but they could have done more in these scenes to, you know, if they wanted to, I mean, they could have really gone for it. I mean, Lynch wouldn't have gone for it, but another director would have gone for the idea that Merritt gets that riding crop away from Bites and whips him. You know, they could have really had an ass-kicking, fist-pumping scene. They give that scene instead to Anthony Hopkins and Motherhead, that they get to beat up Jim the Porter for, you know, selling... Merrick out and hitting him with a you know bag of uh, flour, but but Merrick never gets that moment. That is Lynch humor, isn't it? With the bag of flour coming up from behind, it's just it almost feels like something you'd see in Young Frankenstein. But I think we're going to see this kind of silly violence continue as we watch certain Lynch films, even if it is like hard hitting, it still happens in a silly way. But I do feel because this is such a sentimental film like and it also follows just the way biopics work is merrick's got to hit that low point for when he declares he is a human being like we're gonna see him you know he escapes the circus he gets on the boat he's he's back to wearing that mask again it's a it's all about that that final declaration so I, i just feel like from a story standpoint for for a sentimental story standpoint yeah you want to bring him low so when he makes that declaration it's going to be all the more triumphant and that is of course the big quote even if you've never seen this movie you know that quote you know that scene unfortunately it just comes a little bit out of the blue yeah he stumbles into a girl it's not like he tramples her to death he's not lenny from of mice and men who just stupidly kills a girl he's on the run from this boy who's 
throwing spit wads at him or something, and he knocks down a girl, causing this mob, and they corner him in a urinal. Isn't that Frankenstein? I mean, Frankenstein had a similar thing with a girl at a lake. Yeah, only he kills the girl at the lake. Yeah. Yeah. And here, again, this girl's just knocked down. This movie, it feels like it's pulling so many punches that it could have gone for to be a little more impactful if it wasn't playing so damn safe. I don't know that I needed Merrick to kill anyone. I mean, I, I'm not I don't, saying yeah, that, no. <laughs> but why is a mob going after him for bumping her? Well, because he's a freak. And even though, again, I think the upper crust and the celebrities know who the elephant man, I think most of the uh, the proletariat probably don't. They don't read the, those parts of the newspaper. So it is this freakishly looking person who was once very, well, I don't know, high up, but he had the respect of the queen at one point, And now here he is being attacked by this mob. What place will accept him. I mean, that's, I, he seems to be without a home. You know, they, they put him in the hospital. They changed the rules for all of that. But even there, yeah, he found scorn and he does not seem to be able to exist in this world. He is too perfect, maybe too beautiful for this ugly world. But these are ugly people attacking him. And one of them is David Lynch, apparently. He dressed up for the scene. He's, he's in camera attacking poor old elephant man. Oh, I didn't catch him. No, I didn't either. Perhaps he combed down his pompadour. (laughs) So he returns to the hospital after this, and we know he's been beaten and he's had a rough time, but why is he dying? He seems just as fine as he's ever been, but now you got the nurses, does he know he's dying? Well, I didn't know. Yeah, well, this movie makes those choices, and Lynch usually makes those choices. He skips over plot points and surprise, yeah, I mean, I think this movie, the feel of it, the way that it will suddenly, a scene will just suddenly end, it'll just fade to black, surprisingly, suddenly, before it seems to get going. It has its own rhythm and movement, and if you wanted to tell a more cleanly well-established plot-driven version of this story you would have never told it in this way this is all of the touch of lynch love it or hate it in historical truth the character was dying period he just the doctors knew that he was dying and they couldn't help him yeah my assumption was with all those tumors and growths on his back he couldn't even lay down like a regular person or else he'd die so something had to be wrong with him Yeah, I didn't do all the reading you did, Stuart, but I hit a wiki, and so I knew that. But I work very hard to separate what I know from internet from what this movie is telling me. And if I was watching this in theaters in 1980, that would really throw me for a loop. Well, yeah, I don't know if we're supposed to conclude because the mob attacked him that that was some kind of mortal blow. I don't know if they were trying to imply that. You could make that jump in reason. The way that I accept it as a fable, as a moral, is that there's just no place for this man. And that the final place that he can go before he leaves this earth is to reflect on what it is to be stared at. Only this time he gets to do it to something else. That there are all these animals on stage and he gets to be the one to look at them. Yeah, and they'll have those similar puffs of smoke that we saw in that weird elephant, what I'm calling the conception scene, at the beginning. Like, at first, I'm like, oh, is that triggering some memory? Because he flinches at first, but I guess he's just startled by the fireworks. <laughs> yeah, and a big motif I pointed out last time. I know, Arnie, you struggle with the, the artificialness of the lady in the radiator, but we're going to see her in various versions throughout Lynch. I think that he sees salvation in mocking terms. I mean, we will see a fairy godmother just like her on that stage. And in some ways, the that photograph of the mother here at the end, 
I don't know if we're meant to think that this is a happy ending or whether it's Lynch mocking the idea of a happy ending. Oh, I took this when I was seven or eight years old, and I took it this time as the most sentimental and sappy of happy endings. He gets his moment, he gets his night out, he gets everyone to applaud him, he feels redeemed, and then he goes, and after a perfect night, lays down as he's always wanted to do, knowing that it will take his life that's already ending. This whole thing shrieks of sentimentality and Hollywoodism that it doesn't surprise me at all that this got nominated for a whole bunch of Oscars, because this is the kind of cloyingness I associate with Oscar bait. Wow, see, I think it works in that way, even if you accept that's the reading, and I think that's the way I would have read it as a child. I think it's the way most people when first watching would read it. I think that that's still moving. I mean, this is a, this really happened. I mean, that's not just Hollywood contriving an untruth. Did it really happen that he went out and had a standing ovation given to him and then he laid down? I know he really laid down, or that's at least the theory. No, no. I mean, it didn't happen on the same night. But yes, no. he had a performance dedicated to him. And yes, he seems to make the choice. That's the way that I read it anyway. He makes the choice that if not to die, if not to kill himself, that he's not going to be denied a normal night's sleep. That he refuses to be abnormal again. Yeah, I don't read this ending. Yeah, he goes to the play and standing ovation. Okay, that's sentimental. But I just love the little details. Like he goes home and he finishes his church. He signs his name on it. Like I, I see this as him taking control of his salvation his life and yeah he's gonna be normal for once he and he makes an active decision i feel like it's the one time in this movie i feel like he's a very active character and he's gonna lay down like that little boy in the picture and he knows the consequence and he's okay with that at this point and nobody's saying anything to him the other thing that struck me is the fact that we started with you know anthony hopkins got all the answers he's the talker he's the society guy towards the end it's merit to all the talking saying I am this way because I'm loved and thank you my friend and Hopkins is nothing he can say nothing it's the the roles have reversed yeah it's kind of disappointing to see him be so English and not emotive (laughs) (laughs) no tears to be shed at the end here at least from Hopkins yeah he's really changed there Yeah, I mean, it was really the moment. You know he's not doing well. You might not have known that this is the night, but he knows when he tells him, oh, yeah, we'll go again, that that's probably not true. I thought it was a moving way to end this and and captivated my imagination. The fact that it ends rather than concluding that he's dead, which is, you know, reductive, that they turn it back into fantasy and that we blast out into outer space I always thought that that was incredibly moving. Yeah, and again, you could read it so many different ways, but is John, has he created this fantasy to cope with his life where his mother's talking to him again and telling him nothing ever dies, you're going to be okay, you know, reads off this poem and, you know, there's different ways to read it. I, I do see it as kind of tragic. Is he delusional at this point? But at least he's making a decision. He, he's taking his life into his own hands, literally. If But if this wasn't Lynch, if this movie was exactly what it was and not by Lynch, I mean, the reading I had with it before I knew who Lynch was is he's gone to heaven and he's with his mother who loves him unconditionally and who he's worshipped in life right now. I know there's a lot of ways you can read it, but how many people would be deconstructing it to that level if this wasn't a director who made Eraserhead and made other stuff later on like this? Well, you can deconstruct anything. Yes. I don't think it's just because Lynch is doing it. I mean, what you're asking me to comment on is how will people perceive it? 
they're welcome to perceive it any way they would. And Lynch would have it exactly so. I don't think that he asked people to say, hey, this is one of my movies. See it through that perspective. I, you know, see it however you want to. Yes, as a child, this obviously was the ending. And I guess I fear that we are venturing into over-analysis given who the director is. Instead of discussing a hypothetical person who may or may not, I feel that, like, we are delving into the realm of deconstructionism that reflects more on us than the film at hand. Well, then let me just say that we're on a David Lynch retrospective, and what I hope to do by seeing the film after film is to point out motifs and themes, and what we're seeing is yet again an ending that can be read as either freedom or death. I read it as both, actually. I thought it was freedom in death. You could say that it's awfully sentimental. Again, that lady in the radiator saving him from that awful nightmare fate. Or was that obliteration? I mean, I think that we will see that again. What, what I'm asking you to observe, whether you like it or not, you're going to see Lynch make the choice not to say conclusively for several more films. Laura Palmer's death, Wild at Heart. I just think that he likes to create endings that have multiple readings. And I don't think there's a problem seeing this through the director's eye. We're doing a director's retrospective. And I think, you know, I could do a college paper where I do think, you know, if I see a racer head as Lynch's fear of fatherhood and, and responsibility and losing creativity, like here is his reconciliation with that. He has embraced the freakish child and he's he's learning how to make creativity out of that. I, I don't, you know, I, I think that's what makes film analysis or any artistic analysis interesting is that, yeah, there are multiple readings. And because this is a director doing each of these films, we will see those motifs repeat. And whether you like the movie or not, I mean, you can have those readings and still say, oh, but I don't really like this movie. I mean, I think that's a separate review that I think we're at. I mean, maybe that's what we should get to. So Jacob Stewart, do you recommend The Elephant Man? Jacob. My recommendation, it's just based on kind of what we discussed, you know, what would the elephant man be like if it wasn't Lynch? You know, if it was still this script minus some crazy dream sequences, you know, minus some of those sounds and industrial imagery, I still think you'd have, you'd have a more sentimental film, I think. I'd still think it'd be a decent film, probably a recommendable film. I think what Lynch brings to it, at least for me, is just more interesting by talking about nature and mechanics and, and his use of sound and bringing in the surreal dream sequences to, you know, what would it be like to be in the mind of John Merrick and, and go through life, you know, being this hideously deformed human being, but also very sweet and, and, and loving and trying to have society accept that. I, I think what Lynch brings actually helps the film out even more. And I just, I like the ambiguity here. Like, how do you deal with this thing, I'll call it. Like, how can this thing ever find peace? Or does it have to just lay down and go to sleep and kill itself to be at peace with the world? I, I, I think this asks some pretty hard questions. I, you know, it's reductive to say it holds a mirror up to the viewer because, like, literally, that's what this film is about. But I think this film asks interesting questions. It's shot in an interesting way. The sound design, again, those things I liked about Eraserhead, Lynch has brought back. So this is another strong recommend for me. Stuart. You know, I'm glad we're seeing this right before Thanksgiving because it does give you a lot to be grateful about. I think that it works 
on two different levels. I think that when I was young, I appreciated it for being the sentimental, strange fairy tale that it was, that it took a monster and gave him grace and an ascendance to heaven. I thought that that was beautiful and moving and, again, touched me in ways that just didn't leave me. Now, I do think it is more because I'm a fan of Lynch and I like the way that he works. I like his sound design. I like the way that he constructs scenes and movements and creates feelings without being based in plot. I mean, many people could have made this movie, and I'm sure it would have been a good movie in other hands, but I do feel like what I carry away with by watching it in this way are those dream sequences, are the way that it's edited, that black and white cinematography, those moments that linger, those observations that feel particular to a director who, yes, I've seen make movies that are more interesting to me directly. I I think that this was a sellout movie. I think it was something that Lynch did for money, but that doesn't mean that it isn't one of his films. And I think that it strongly, re again, represents his talent and his command of film language in a way that's much more digestible for mainstream audiences. So if you hated Eraserhead, I'm still going to say this is a solid recommend. And I agree completely that Lynch is an auteur. I think that we see much of his fingerprint here with, yes, the fact that it's shot in black and white, the opening whatever, and the ending scene, and the dream sequences, and the sound that drowns out the dialogue. True holdovers from Eraserhead, and we will see that again in later films, absolutely. But just because we are dealing with an auteur, I do think, because this is his first studio film, I agree with what you said, Stuart. I think this is a sellout film, and so I take a lot of that away from this, and I analyze this as the movie it is, the story it is. And what I find it to be is a little bit slow for the few beats it has. It draws them out an exceptionally long time, and it's overly sentimental. That doesn't make it a bad film. I think we just all agreed so quickly when I started to talk about the actors and everything, how great Anthony Hopkins is in this movie, and just how amazing John Hurt is in this movie. And really, all the actors do so well in fitting this very stylized period piece that it was honestly more interesting to look at the plot and look at the character arcs and see how you guys thought they played out versus how I thought they played out. And while I loved this movie when I saw it at a very young age and I wept like a baby when the Elephant Man died and it's a image that stuck with me for over 30 years now, watching it as an adult, I see some flaws. Being schmaltzy doesn't mean an instant not recommend at all. It just means that I thought I'd come back and love this film and no, I just come back and I really like this film. The sentimentality works for me by and large and the fact that I have so many questions about John Merrick's life here, why they wouldn't let him go out and see the church, and why they don't follow up on if the doctor decides he is a good man or not, is a sign that I'm really into the movie. I'm really into these characters and their arcs. I just want to see them flushed out a little bit more and done to completion. So yeah, this is definitely a solid recommend. It's a film I think everybody should see. The makeup effects, the cinematography, the sound design. I love all how Lynch did it here. It's like he took the things in Eraserhead that he did well, and by adding in somebody else's script, found 
a really perfect balance of his style and a plot-driven film. And Jacob, you started off by saying this is like a sequel to Eraserhead. I say this is honestly a perfect balance of Lynch style with the story I've been looking for. No, this is a real solid recommend. I like this movie quite a bit. I think that the, the sum is greater than the individual parts. I mean, you're right. I, I didn't mention John Hurt, and there's a million wonderful things, the acting all around, but I just think that it's unified because it all feels of one piece. And that's funny. I think the parts are greater than the sum. <laughs> and get used to slow. I mean, I don't think that Lynch has ever made a fast film, and I think lingering is a part of what he does with the camera. I think that he stares too long, and it makes you uncomfortable. I don't have a problem with that as far as slow camera shots. What I have a problem with is slow pacing. And when we get to his later films, possibly even as soon as next week, we're going to see things move story-wise or at least hook me. Are you saying Dune's a fast-paced film? <laughs> I'm saying it's six hours cut down to what, three? No, it's two hours and 15 minutes. Yeah, and it was supposed to be a lot longer. A lot happens in Dune in a short time. I've never made it through Dune because it's so slow, so we'll see. Oh, wow. I think I'll get kind of careens. Patience is a virtue you must have to approach any Lynch movie. I can think none of them that don't have a slow pace. That is a part of the design. Mm, we'll see when we get later on into them, especially when we get into the late 80s, early 90s, Twin Peaks era, but... We, we will see, but yes, next week, he goes sci-fi. He didn't do Return of the Jedi. He was offered it after Elephant Man. Instead, he did Dune, one of the most notorious bombs of all time. Hmm. Well, I guess you'll have to discuss that with me next week. I do think that it was a movie that was misunderstood upon its release and now has... I don't know. I think about it differently. I, I It was sold to me as a child as, like, Star Wars. Yes. And that it ain't. Yeah. And, and you know what? I just, having come back to the source material, I have read the novels. I'm making that journey through all the Frank Herbert Six Dune novels. I'm going to begin that journey next week as well. On Books and Nachos, we're going to look at the source material. I think it's helpful to start there and come from that knowledge. But, yeah, also look at what, how Lynch made it his own vehicle. Whatever it is, I definitely feel like it's, it's of the same piece as what we've been discussing. And in between, we're going to be discussing something very much not a Lynch film. We have another Horror of 1986 review. Black Friday is upon us, so how about some black metal? Trick or treat, folks. We're just a, a month behind in the holidays. <laughs> yeah, Gene Simmons and Ozzy Osbourne. Sort of. I mean, let's not oversell them. They're big on the poster, <laughs> but it's really all about Skippy and a solid gold dancer. Still not scoring with Mallory. Yes, that will be this Friday. And last Friday was Deadly Friend. And I am happy to announce we have a contest. I have a DVD of Deadly Friend signed by Christy Swanson. You can win this. No donation is necessary. But you do have to tell us which of these films is your favorite in our forums. So there will be a link from our Deadly Friend post on our webpage or just come to our forums and you can post there and you have until the end of the year. We're going to run this through the end of the year, the end of our donation drive and just post in that forum thread which of the 16 films we're reviewing in any of these series is your favorite and why. And then we will get this DVD out in the mail to one lucky listener. 
So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. So until next time, goodbye, my friend. I know my rights. I have the authority to close you down, and I'm doing just that. This exhibit degrades everybody who sees it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's David Lynch Retrospective Series, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You really enjoyed yourself. Oh. Oh. Wonderful. Then we must go again some evening. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com to hear our reviews of other films such as Blade Runner, Ocean's Eleven, the James Bond films, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at NowPlayingPodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. Good heavens, you haven't acquired a sudden taste of this sort of stuff, have you? Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums where you and the other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie review. The link to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com. You should be more sociable, mate. Get yourself disliked. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. More than money has changed hands. We understand each other completely, my friend. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I think you'll be quite comfortable here for a while. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. I am not an animal! I am a human! Now playing credit narration by Brock. I want to hear. I want to hear you talk. We're gonna, we're gonna show them that you're not a wall. Do you understand? I want you to talk to me. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. I shall go to the authorities. Go to the authorities then. Go to them by all means. I'm sure they'll be very interested to hear your story as well as ours. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. I have to rely on my imagination for what I can't actually see. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Bye, Mr. Merrick. I do hope we shall meet again. I am recording. I'm recording. Recording. And I'm not going to do this all... No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's too... Yeah, too much. <laughs> One thing I would have loved the movie to include is the idea that Merrick, for the longest time, 
had a fantasy about living with blind people, that he thought that they would be without judgment. And he had heard of blind communes <laughs> and wanted to live there. There was an episode of Doogie Hauser about that, where his friend dates a blind girl. And then when she gets her sight, she dumps him for being ugly. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, uh, I'm, okay. 